everybody's lives are just turned completely upside down in the actions of some random person. For whatever reason, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know what, why the person did what they did, but for whatever reason, they've just absolutely turned so many lives upside down and broken so many hearts. It's just awful. How do you ever return to any form of normality when your child goes missing? In this episode, we'll hear from William's foster parents on their unbearable pain as the search continues for their son with no answers on where he is or what may have happened. We'll hear for the first time about William's big sister and how she struggles to live without her best friend. We'll also delve into the homicide investigation as one of the country's best police inspectors, Gary Jubelin, takes over and why he initially suspected William's foster parents may have been involved. We'll take you through the first key persons of interest in William's disappearance with a nearby pedophile ring investigated and a local repairman questioned. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, we start with Jane and Peter arriving back home in Sydney and they've spoken to you about how difficult that was, returning home and seeing all of William's belongings there at their home without William. Yeah, it's obviously so hard for them to talk about um, and and coming home, being around all his things and you can imagine um, being a parent how much stuff in your house reminds you of your kids and, you know, they've spoken about... The doll that he slept with, for example, his favourite doll he slept with every night called Little Tara. And, you know, he was so proud of what they called his big boy's bed. That's why he called it. Um, He slept with Little Tara, a Spider-Man and a monkey and he would wrap them all in their own little blankets that Jane had crocheted for him. Um, So they're coming back to Sydney to their house and seeing all these things that constantly remind him, remind them of him and and it must have just been so heartbreaking for them and, and continues to be. They've also spoken about how he was really creative. He loved to draw, he loved to paint, he even loved playing the piano and he loved singing and performing for guests whenever they would come over and that was always a big entertainment for everyone. He obviously loved the attention. Go, William. Jane and Peter, Leah, often talk about the incredible bond that William and his older sister, who were calling Lindsay, had. I think we've often forgotten about her because it must have been, it's incredibly tough for the parents to even comprehend what's gone on, but it was her best little friend has gone. Yeah, and I've I've spoken about before that Jane and Peter particularly recently don't like to speak much about her, but over the past sort of four or five years they have spoken to me about what that was like for her and for them and what she knew about what was going on, where William was. Um, they said that she she knew that William was missing and that Gary Jubelin, who we'll get to a bit later, was the man who was going to try and find him. Um, and that was kind of the extent of, of the knowledge that you would give a child about where her little brother is. But the heartbreaking thing about this is is not just that she lost her little brother and she was learning to live without him. It's also that, you know, she, she also had to keep that secret because as I've spoken before about the fact that Jane and Peter wanted her to live a normal life and they didn't want her to be known as the the sister of the boy who went missing because I think that is a huge burden for a child. And so she was actually keeping that secret at daycare and then at school when she started school that that, that was her brother. She, um, you know, she, she didn't tell anyone that she was William Tyrrell's sister. Um, and Jane's told me that that was important for them to, to maintain her own sense of identity and her own sense of individual development and give her the chance to grow up to be the person that she's supposed to be without that shadow hanging over her. Was that, though, hard in some parts for her, though, because to comprehend what was going on, that she couldn't talk to anyone about it? Was that an added burden for her? I think it definitely would have been, and I guess it's a a double-edged sword. You Mm. know, if you you allow her to, um, you know, be really open about that, it, it does sort of 
overshadow her life. You know, everyone knows her as the, the sister of the little boy who's missing and it kind of does take away her individuality and her ability to just grow into the individual that she is. And, you know, there are examples of, of other siblings who are in similar situations who have really struggled growing up with that burden hanging over them and that's what they wanted to avoid for her. But as you mentioned, the flip side of that is that, you know, keeping this secret must have been really tough and must continue to be tough for her. Not being identified publicly is is a is a benefit for her, but it also means that no one knows what she's actually going through. Interestingly, Jane and Peter also spoke to you, Leah, about the fact that when William disappeared, it gave them added empathy for William's birth parents. So I think this is the thing that we need to acknowledge as, as we go along here, that while this is all going on and while Jane and Peter are dealing with this and while Lindsay is dealing with this, William's birth parents are also dealing with this. They're dealing with a child who they already had removed from them, who they already lost in a sense years earlier, who is now missing. And they're obviously having to come to terms with that. And one of the things that Jane spoke to me about is that it actually, it it felt for them like they finally understood to a degree what his birth parents went through when he was removed. And I think that's a really important insight into this dynamic that was going on there because, you know, they feel they've now got an insight into that trauma that they must have experienced having him removed, um, having now lost him as well. So it certainly did give them a new sense of empathy for the position that they were put in. How has this been for you since then, since that day? Mm. You're in an alternate universe. You really, and the circumstances that have happened since we came back for the last almost five years now, it just doesn't feel like we're living our lives. It feels like we're living somebody else's life and it's we're in it it happens to be us but it's yeah you always it's it's almost like you almost think it's um because you almost see it's someone else someone else that it normally happens to and you're reading about it you're seeing you're seeing what's occurring in relation to that particular event but in this instance we're in the thick of it yeah right in the thick of it that you're in that you can't get out you know you can you might be able to see things outward, but you just can't. You can't get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, these are the cards that you're dealt. But you got to. I don't know. You just got to get up every day and you got to handle it. And, and for people who have experienced, you know, grief and trauma and loss of family members and loved ones, they they would know this is the hardest thing to do. Is that your life goes on. Well, somebody else's life has stopped and it just is so incredibly difficult to get your head around that. And what's even harder is that um, nobody has closure over yeah. what's happened. Um, you know, we don't know what's happened. We don't know who took him. We don't know why that person took him. Mm. And we don't know where William is. So we know statistically it doesn't look good for him coming back, but there's no evidence to say that he won't. So what do we do with that? Where do you go with that? I think that's the biggest biggest challenge that we face, that we struggle with, is the fact that there there is nothing. That's the biggest challenge, at least if you had something that at least gave you, I don't know, a shoe or something like that. But there is nothing. It's like he just vanished into thin air. Mm. That's that's the hardest thing to come to grips mm. with. So while the parents are dealing with having no answers, no idea what's happened to William, the police investigation, the homicide investigation kicks off with also veteran detective Hans Rupp heading the investigation. So Hans Rupp was at the end of his career. He was a very experienced investigator and he was nearing retirement and they gave this to him as essentially one of his last cases and uh, the hope obviously was that he would solve this case and then retire. And he actually focused quite heavily on the birth parents um, in his initial investigation. Why? 
I think in as I've spoken about before, in these sorts of scenarios, it is very common for the birth parents of a child in care to attempt to or to abduct him. And as we know, they they had done that before. And even though, um, you know, Stacey and Daniel, who we've um, named as the birth parents um, as pseudonyms, they were in Sydney at the time that William went missing. So they were able to prove that. They were in Sydney. They weren't anywhere near Kendall. But they then had to consider the possibility that they had associates do it for them. And that was a, a line of inquiry that Hans focused quite heavily on early on and uh, monitoring their movements as well. You can imagine if, if they had organised for William to be abducted, at some point they would want to be reunited with him. So, you know, they're they're following that line of inquiry and um, that is a focus that he, he really prioritised at that point. The investigation moved pretty quickly, though, onto the washing machine repairman, Bill Spedding, who, of course, was the repairman that went to William's foster grandmother's house to look at the broken washing machine. As we mentioned in other episodes, Bill Spedding was a washing machine repairman, a white goods repairman, who Margaret, the foster grandmother, had called from an ad in the local paper to come and fix her broken washing machine. So he also owned a secondhand shop in nearby Loriton, which is about 11 kilometres from Kendall, where William disappeared. And he lived on a rural property in Bonnie Hills, which was about 20 kilometres away. So he actually attended Benaroon Drive to Margaret's house in the days before William disappeared to give her a quote for the repair and he said he ordered a new part. Now, William was not there when he visited and as far as we know, they had never interacted before. So when Jane and Peter arrived, Jane then called um, Spedding on the morning of William's disappearance to follow up on, on the washing machine repair and that was a couple of hours before William vanished. And at the time, Margaret told her he wouldn't call back to say he was coming, he would just show up whenever the part had arrived. And then a couple of hours later, William disappeared. So Leah, did Mr Spedding turn up to the property? He didn't turn up on the day William disappeared, but there was, uh, at the recent inquest, his lawyer suggested that um, Spedding had perhaps left a phone message on Margaret's phone that afternoon in response to Jane's phone call. So just to clarify, when Mr Spedding first visited Margaret's house to give her a quote on the repair work to the washing machine, William was not there at that stage? No, that was several days before they arrived. So, Leah, why was Mr Spedding a person of interest for investigators? I think a big part of it was because he was connected to the house. Um, He'd visited in the days before and there was a a theory that perhaps, as Margaret said, um, he would just turn up rather than calling, that maybe he had just turned up that day. Um, But I think it's important to note here that there are restrictions on how much we can say about um, certain persons of interest or about some evidence Um, and that's because of the ongoing inquest and and there are legal restrictions about what we can say publicly before it is said at the inquest. And police made that public in late January, didn't they, in 2015? Yeah, so Hans Rupp um, and his homicide team with um, the help from some local police officers actually searched his Bonnie Hills property in late January. They drained septic tanks and used an excavator in the backyard, which obviously um, sparked grave fears for what they were looking for at the time. Uh, They also executed a search warrant at his secondhand shop and they seized a mattress and some computer equipment from that office. And while it was being run by Homicide and Hans Rupp at the time, Superintendent Paul Fion, who was the local commander of the the police at the time, he was still the public face of the case and he gave a press conference at the site. We're not ruling out anything at this point in time. We have maintained that view from the beginning, but we'll continue to go through all aspects of investigation and look at any possible scenario. A number of people have been spoken to as part of this phase of the investigation. Leah, did investigators find anything during that search? They did seize some items, as I mentioned, and they were forensically tested, but they didn't find anything. And it was shortly after that search that um, Detective Hans Rupp actually announced that he was retiring. So despite having not solved this case yet, he decided to hand it over to Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin. So he is a a quite high-profile veteran homicide detective with more than 25 years' experience, and he's worked on some very big cases, including the Barraville murders of 
three children and his work on that actually changed double jeopardy laws in New South Wales. Another of his cases um, related to the Sydney underworld, which um, led to him being depicted in a TV show called Underbelly. And there was another high-profile case of the murder of Matt Levison and his work on that case, um, some unprecedented legal manoeuvres, actually led to the discovery of Matt Levison's remains after a decade um, and gave his parents some long-awaited closure for that. Um, So he is known for his dogged detective work, which is part of the reason why they gave him the William Tyrrell case, and he's also known for his dedication to supporting victims' families. Detective Inspector Gary Jubelin is a man whose dogged investigation skills have already made it to the small screen. Now he's been given a new mission, finding William Tyrrell. Leah, can I ask, though, for William's foster parents, was that quite unsettling for them to have such a senior detective then retire and then hand the investigation over to Gary? For them, they didn't even know Gary, did they? No, they didn't. And they've spoken about when Hans did retire that he apologised to them for having not solved it yet. He genuinely thought that he would have it solved before he retired. As I mentioned before, he had some strong theories that he thought were going to play out and and they didn't. So having to leave the force and hand it over to another detective was not his plan. Um, But he introduced them to Gary. He did the handover and obviously told them that they were in extremely capable hands. Um, And he actually, when he introduced them, has told me that um, the first thing that she noticed about Gary was that he immediately then looked at them with suspicion again. Why? I think coming in with fresh eyes, he wasn't immediately convinced of their innocence. I think um, he wanted to come in with a completely open mind and as we've spoken about before, the people closest to William are, you know, the most likely suspects. So he wanted to decide for himself whether or not they were responsible. What was your first ever knowledge of Gary? Um, I think you were at work. And the what happened was um, that police had pretty much assigned homicide to William's disappearance really early on. Um, it just wasn't broadly communicated. And so um, the detective inspector who was leading the investigation at that time was retiring. And so they um, assigned Gary to this case. So... The first I heard of and met Gary was at a handover that was done at our house. So that was through from hands rub. Yeah, so he introduced So he introduced Gary to us. At that point, I'd never heard of Gary Jubilant. I no connection or reference to the name whatsoever. I mean, it was just to me it was just a, another detective and that nor, was it. nor should you have, I yeah. suppose. So when when we were meeting, I could feel that he was just sizing me up and, you know, you could feel the suspicion coming all over again, which is good because I, I think you've got to constantly well, keep you, going back and we want police to keep coming back and going, is, you is know going to still be questioning, going, okay, still you know, still giving still you the hard eye and going, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I remember that and I remember thinking to myself, oh, he's still trying to figure out was, were we involved or not, which I thought was quite, I had a bit of an inside giggle on that bit. Um, but um, he, we... I Googled him and in Googling him I realised who Gary Jubilant was and what he'd done and I thought, wow, this is good. This is really good. What did they tell you about him initially? Not a lot. When they said that he was taking over, they didn't tell you? No, not a lot. It was just uh, another policeman taking over and experienced and that he'd been on... um, A number of high profile. He'd been on a number of high high profile. I didn't even think to ask because this is still, this is what, five... it's still early. This is still really early on. So, you know. Um, Four and a half years ago now. Yeah. 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 But, I, but I remember not knowing who he was. Um, I remember then somebody telling me that he was the character on an Underbelly series. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> and thinking, wow, okay. And then, then I thought, oh, I'll just find out more about that Underbelly series and I got given a set of DVDs I think that, from a that friend. Was a catalyst and, to actually and then, watching his type of character, to seeing a bit of And that. I'm watching that and I'm thinking, whoa. So 
you know, naive me had never, ever had any sort of interaction with police or anything like that, just eyes just completely open. But mm. what it gave us, I think, was this sense of we've got the right guy. But then we started to hear all these people are telling us how good he is and how solid his reputation is and how focused and dedicated and how good a cop he is. Mm. We had the then Minister of Police telling us that he was New South Wales Police's top cop. Leah, at this stage it's almost been six months since William's disappearance and it must have been incredibly unsettling for the biological parents, for the foster parents, for everyone involved with William that there already had been a change in the person running the investigation. But they were assured by many people that Gary Jubelin was the best person for the job. That's right. And this was a really high-profile case. Right from day one, it was really high-profile. So they certainly didn't want to have to change investigators more than once and they wanted someone who was the best person for the job. And they had the head of homicide, the police commissioner, a lot of senior people telling them that if anyone could find William, it was Gary Jubelin. We had people within the police force telling us we don't have anybody better than Gary Jubelin leading this investigation. Yeah, yeah. And then with Gary, he was the person who got our, the strike force from this tiny little group yeah. to these massive and the focus and the dedication and the <laughs> effort he put into mm-hmm. looking for William was unbelievable. And... Yeah, so everybody is telling us how good and how fortunate and how lucky William is to have him on the case. And for the last four years or so, four and a half years, that's been our experience. And the head of homicide um, for the majority of um, William's case has been Michael Willing. Yes. What did he tell you about, Gary? Same thing. Same thing. He supported that. I mean, you know, if you want to, yeah. Yeah, exactly the same. You've got the right guy. You've got the right person on the job. He's one of our best investigators. You will, he he will be there. He'll see this through to the end. Yeah. There is you can one hundred percent. And Gary knows what he's doing. He's professional. He's got integrity. All those mm. all those words are coming to us. And what we've found over those four years, one hundred percent consistent. So what was one of the first things that Gary did when he took over the investigation? Because what's very interesting with often with police investigations is sometimes they can actually on purpose put out information to flush out suspects. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely a strategy and um, Gary's someone who is also known for using the media to his advantage and I think he did do that a lot in this case. Um, so one of the first things he did was to call for anyone who was within a square kilometre of where William disappeared to come forward. And that's obviously a lot of people. And he wanted to come in with fresh eyes and cast a wide net and find out exactly who was in the area and then look into every single one of them. So he basically publicly said that anyone who was there within that square kilometre who doesn't come forward will then be looked at with suspicion. Police want to speak with everyone who was within a one kilometre radius of the home between 10 and 11 that morning. If they don't come forward, that would cause me concern. Given the circumstances of William's disappearance, there would be a certain amount of suspicion attached to anyone that was in the area at the time and did not start come forward to police. Why did he take that approach? As I said, I think he wanted to come in with fresh eyes and um, no sort of preconceived notions as to what's going on, cast a wide net, find every single person who could possibly have done this and look into everyone individually and rule them out as he went along. Now, at this same time, they set up a special strike force headquarters in Port Macquarie and they also continued with the spedding investigation. So the spedding investigation remained ongoing. He had not yet been ruled out as a person of interest and this then led to another search of his property in um, in Bonnie Hills um, and a second search, which was actually on a seemingly random spot on a roadway, which was a bush track covering about three kilometres of bushland. And that included dogs and police divers in waterways, 
Um, And at the time, Gary told the media that he was responding to a tip from the public as well as information gained from their own investigation. And so it was not far from Bill Spedding's home, this, this spot next to the roadway that they were searching. And during that search, Gary Jubilin actually visited Bill Spedding's house while the search was underway and he also spoke to the media at the scene who then asked him about that visit. I've spoken to a number of people today. Who and why I spoke to them, I'm not prepared to say. We've recovered recovered a number of items, but nothing that's of particular significance to us at this stage. The question's been asked, does that include uh, a body? Of course, when we're looking for a, uh, evidence, that would also include a body. So would one suspect straight away that from the outset Gary was very interested in pursuing Mr Spedding as a key suspect? It was very obvious that... Bill Spedding was at the time one of their main persons of interest and that was obvious based on the overt investigation they were doing, the search and the visiting his house. And at that time, is it true that Mr Spedding was seen driving past that search in his van? So his work van um, actually had the name of his business on the side and it was spotted by reporters um, who were at that search scene covering it driving past the scene quite slowly, basically having a look at what was going on. And it was also later revealed that during one of the searches of his property, police actually found a Spider-Man toy in his car during that search. Did he have any young children? He had several young children in his care uh, and they have since been removed by authorities. Important to note, though, that he was later arrested but not in relation to William. He was arrested in April of 2015 by the strike force, by Gary Jubilant and his detectives, um, but it was not in regards to William's disappearance. It was actually in regards to historic child sex offences. For months, Bill Spedding has been at the front of a major investigation. Tonight, he's behind bars. The 63-year-old fronted court today charged with seven counts of attacking and raping two girls just six and three years old. He denies any part in it, just like he denies any part in the abduction of three-year-old William Tyrrell. Did you have anything to do with William Tyrrell's disappearance? No. Now, he was initially jailed before eventually being released on bail. So during his court case um, and while he was trying to apply for bail, his lawyer actually claimed um, that a family member um, was responsible for the offences that he was um, charged with. It came out that Spedding was actually linked to a notorious Sydney murderer and pedophile named Jeffrey John Hillsley, who was actually serving a life sentence for homicide and the rape of a 10-year-old girl. Mr. Spedding was actually married to Mr. Hillsey's sister in the 1980s and they later divorced, which reportedly did not end on good terms. So his lawyer claimed that Hillsley was responsible for the crimes that Spedding was accused of. And several months after he was charged and then released on bail, he Spedding actually posted this bizarre video of himself on YouTube. Hello, I'm Bill Spedding. My wife Margaret and I offer the Tyrrell family our sincere commiserations in the tragic event of William's disappearance. I wish to state that I have had no involvement whatsoever in the disappearance of William Tyrrell. I have noted in the media that some events have been reported inaccurately. I wish to clarify those details. I first attended the Tyrrell house on Tuesday the 9th September 2014 to repair a washing machine. I returned to complete the repair of the washing machine on Thursday the 18th September 2014. I have not been in the Tyrrell House or to the Tyrrell House or to the street before, between or after these dates. The media have reported that I was supposed to attend the Tyrrell House on the 12th of September 2014, this being the day of William's disappearance. I wish to make it perfectly clear that this claim is completely false. I did make any indication of any nature which would lead to any person to believe that I was to attend the Tyrrell House on the 12th of September 2014. Anyone whom I appeal to anyone who may have any further information to urge them to contact Crime Stoppers on 1300 333 000. Thank you very much. 
And just to clarify, Leah, Mr Spedding was never convicted of a child sex offence. That's right. Spedding was ultimately found not guilty of those child sex charges in New South Wales. He was also charged with similar offences in Victoria and those charges were later withdrawn. And on William's fourth birthday, Jane and Peter created what they called the Where's William campaign. Yeah, so Jane and Peter were desperate to do something to help find William. Sitting around doing nothing and waiting for news was not an option for them. So with the help of some of their friends who were familiar with these types of awareness campaigns, they launched the Where's William campaign with the objective and the message to help bring William home. Um, William's birth parents were aware of this campaign and they were supportive of it um, despite not being heavily involved in the process. So this campaign raised money for awareness strategies, helped generate new leads and to help keep him in the public eye. Um, I spoke to Jane about this on the phone recently. Um, We we started it um, because we really felt that William didn't have a voice, we didn't have a voice, William's parents didn't have a voice. So the campaign was about being able to say publicly, he's missing, don't forget him, look for him, do whatever you can, um, and just don't give up, don't give up on him. Um, we weren't allowed to speak publicly. We were, we were incredibly boxed in and managed very tightly and very carefully. Um, it was incredibly challenging for us, and I can only imagine how challenging it was for William's mum and dad to not be allowed to speak. Um, and in the absence, for us, in the absence, the absence of doing nothing is not a choice. There was no way in the world we were going to let anybody forget about William because the scenario being presented to us was just let police run with it. You don't need to do anything. It'll be okay. And it, it was no way in the world was it okay. An almost three-and-a-half-year-old boy was taken from his grandmother's house in a street where hardly anybody goes there. It is not okay. We couldn't let the public think that it was okay. We couldn't let the public public's memory fade away and forget about him. He's too young. And there's no way in the world that we could ever let that go. So we weren't able to come out and say anything publicly. But what we could do was build a campaign around how do we help the police? How do we continue to educate and inform the public? that he's still missing and something needs to be done. So the objective of the, of the um, campaign was to influence, it was to lobby, it was to ensure that William's voice was there and that every single person in Australia knew what he looked like, knew how he sounded, knew that he was missing. And we also needed to put the ple- keep the pressure on police and keep the police focused and keep them 100% solely dedicated to finding out what happened to him because it's not okay. People go around taking children and we cannot let that continue to happen. It's just... I don't have the words to describe how wrong that that is. And the campaign for us was William's family's voice and it was his voice because people need to know that he was missing and that he needed to be found. It took months to get up off the ground. We didn't get it up until, um, oh, say maybe April, I think it was April of 2015, to get up off the ground. But we had been fighting and fighting for this campaign from December. Um, we, we needed to do something, and in the end... Um, we just made the decision that we're going to go with it and be damned with the consequences. If we got in trouble for having the campaign, we would so be it. But there was no way in the world we could let, we could sit by and just let this just happen and fade away because the public memory is not long. So how do you keep things in the public domain? You have to campaign, you have to promote, you have to influence. So we were um, introduced to a PR company uh, run by two people, Claire and Alice. Um, They offered to run the campaign pro bono. 
Um, and without them, we would not have had anywhere near what we've got. And part of the strategy with the campaign was to partner with police. So everything that we did from a campaign perspective was 100% in line with police. As the police investigation is continuing, police then speak about a local pedophile ring. So Gary and the then commander of the Homicide Squad, Mick Wheeling, held a press conference um, which perhaps was designed to flush people out or generate new leads, but they spoke about the existence of a pedophile ring that was operating in the area where William disappeared. So not specifically in Kendall but in the wider region um, on the mid-north coast and they said they feared that it could have been linked to his abduction. We have recent information that we've received that relates to a pedophile ring that may be operating. Police won't reveal how extensive the ring is other than to say it was operating in the local area at the time. What did investigators think about the possibility of William being taken by a pedophile that was involved in one of these rings? One of the things that's been raised with me um, by people involved in this case is that William was quite young um, much younger than, I suppose, a, a normal age bracket um, that a pedophile would normally target. And I actually asked Dennis Martin, who you'll recall from previous episodes, is the former detective um, who worked on the Daniel Morecambe case in Queensland. I asked him about this theory and the likelihood that William would have been a target for a pedophile. So based on what you know about pedophiles, um, one of the things that's been, I suppose, an issue that's come up in the William Tyrrell investigation is that William was very young and outside of the normal age bracket that a pedophile would be attracted to. What's your take on that? Do you think William would be a common target for a pedophile? Look, yes, pedophiles have, uh, if if you want to, class them. Would William have been a, um, a target? Look, he would certainly be in the, in the target group for some of those pedophiles, but that doesn't mean that those pedophiles don't transgress. I mean, you know, they will take anything that they can get at the given time, you know. So if you could say that, look, his target is only, uh, you know, boys 10 to 12, or if he takes a seven-year-old, you cannot say that wouldn't be him. You know, they are just horrible human beings that have no moral boundaries and they think that they can do what they wish without any sort of punishment and without any sort of moral compass. So absolutely, William would have been ideal for some of those subgroups, but just some of those subgroups will certainly transgress across into other subgroups if the opportunity arose, if that makes sense. So it's certainly not out of the question that a, a pedophile who lived nearby who was tended towards older children would not want to take William? Absolutely not. I mean, at the end of the day, my understanding from talking to a lot of pedophiles over the time is that, yes, they, they would prefer age groups, but sometimes it's a physical attribute that they go for, whether it's fair hair, dark hair, white skin, black skin... You know, these are the sort of things they look at. And age is sort of a secondary uh, thing for them. Because if they go over um, a certain age group, or maybe not an age group, I guess a certain level of maturity, you know, you then get another group of of, uh, pedophiles. Doesn't mean they won't transgress from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And there, there would be an absolute stupid person would say that William would not be a target because of his age. I would say that he would be a target because of his age. First of all, if he ever escaped or or was found uh, at three, his level of being able to communicate what happened would be difficult. That's one thing they've got to look at. Uh, And the other thing is that he would be easily portable um, and compliant, unfortunately, uh, through little force by the perpetrator. So, you know, there's a lot of... Um, pluses for for that sort of victim, if uh, if that sort of makes sense. It just sickens me, Leah, that you think in these local areas that these pedophile rings exist and these people are walking around in our community. It is hard to accept that police um, and authorities are aware of a pedophile ring operating in an area and that there's not a lot 
in a lot of cases that they can do about it. Um, but as we know, you know, even known pedophiles who have been convicted, they can't stay in jail forever and they have to live somewhere. And in regards to that specific pedophile ring, did police find any leads or who was involved in that ring that police were interested in investigating? So as part of their investigation into that particular pedophile ring, they looked into a local group called Grandparents as Parents Again or GAPA as it was known. And that's a support group for people who were raising their grandchildren. So grandparents who were, for, for whatever reason, raising their own grandchildren and they, they had formed a support group in the local area. They came to the t- attention of the strike force and Gary Jubilant after two of their members were charged with child sex offences shortly after William disappeared. Their former president, Paul Bickford, was charged with assaulting an 11-year-old girl when he drove her to the shop to buy lollies. He was later convicted of indecently assaulting an underage person over that incident. His close friend, Anthony Jones, was also charged and later convicted of assaulting another 11-year-old girl. Jones actually lived across the road from Bill Spedding, but Spedding was not part of that group. To clarify, Gary was interested in investigating this group because of previous child sex offenders some members of this group had faced. Yes, so those two members that I just mentioned, they were charged with child sex offences and that then led to them being investigated by Gary and the strike force. I should also mention and stress that not every member of that Grandparents' as Parents Again group was investigated by police. And what about Tony Jones, who was part of this group? As part of the investigation, police seized his car. Yes, that's right. So shortly after this pedophile ring theory was announced, um, police seized a car belonging to Tony Jones for forensic examination. Now, Strike Force detectives have made this seizure, a white station wagon removed from the home of Tony Jones, a convicted pedophile who lives 30 minutes away. Police revealing it is undergoing forensic examination as part of the investigation into the missing toddler. 59-year-old Jones came to the attention of detectives after he and another former member of the Grandparents as Parents Again social group were charged with unrelated child sex crimes. Yesterday, he was convicted of indecently assaulting a minor and sentenced to three years in jail. For the day of William's disappearance, Jones has reportedly given police an alibi, telling them he was out collecting scrap metal. What's interesting about the car that they seized that belonged to Tony Jones is that it matched the description of one of the cars William's foster mother recalled seeing parked on the street that morning, as we've mentioned in previous episodes. His car that was seized was a white station wagon and that matched the description of the car that Jane saw that morning. However, as far as we are aware, no evidence was found in that car that linked him to William's disappearance. Now, talking about cars, at this stage, police also released artistic impressions of those key vehicles that were seen along that drive in the lead up to William's disappearance. Around the same time, they publicly released these um, sketches of the cars we spoke about in episode four um, to the media so that the public could see them and they called for anyone with information on these cars to come forward. But unfortunately, those cars still remain unidentified to this day. From the investigation point of view, this is almost 12 months since William disappeared. Why would it take investigators so long to release those critical images of those cars? It's really hard to say and it's something we might never know, but I think there's a good reason for these decisions. And I think in a homicide investigation, there are several operational reasons that, you know, anyone who who understands homicide investigations would understand that, Withholding information is sometimes a strategy in itself and there are good reasons for it. Um, They might have been thinking about prosecuting someone down the track or they might have not wanted to tip someone off. Like I said, it's hard to say, but um, we can assume that there was an operational reason for making that decision. And it's also the second car. And, of course, as we know, Jane and Lindsay, they spotted that car and they've worked with police on identifying that vehicle. 
Yeah, they've worked a lot with detectives on this, um, you know, over the past few years, particularly in that first year, to try and get as much detail possible um, from what they recalled of that car and that driver. Um, They did manage to identify what kind of car it was, but they still, again, to this day, have never identified the driver of that car. Because Jane can't remember their face, can she? She remembers seeing the face of the man driving that car that she saw with Lindsay, Mm -hmm. but the people in the cars parked on the street, she doesn't recall seeing them. She doesn't even recall if there was anyone in those cars. Is that something that constantly troubles both of them is I imagine they would be running those details through their mind a thousand times a day? Absolutely. And you can imagine in hindsight, you know, the the frustration of just wishing you'd taken more notice or wishing you'd taken note of a number plate or, you know, all, all the things that in hindsight you can kick yourself for. But obviously at the time, having no idea what was about to happen, um, she just didn't take any notice. One year on, still no sign of William, still no suspects arrested, no sign or indication of where he may be or what has happened. How are the parents coping with that, Leah? Look, it's obviously been an unimaginably difficult year for both his foster parents and his biological parents, you know, having to live through 12 months without William and not knowing where he is. Um, And... In the meantime, this campaign is ongoing involving both sets of parents and um, they decided to do a a one-year anniversary event to raise awareness. Um, They called it Walk for William and a huge contingent of people participated in the event both in Kendall and all over Australia. Um, They wore blue and red ribbons, which are the colours that were in his Spider-Man suit, Um, and that allowed um, the parents to contribute to the search and, and to... I suppose, make, keep them occupied for that day and also make them feel like they were doing something that, that really helped. Um, and it also really gave them the sense of community that was rallied behind them on that day. I wanted to thank people and I wanted to thank people for donating. I wanted to thank people who have just offered us words of support. I want to thank strangers who, who, are care, who care for William. I want to thank I want to thank the public for, you know, they don't know him, but he's loved. And I just, I just think, I I think that's amazing. And I just think what people have done and they've not let, people have not forgotten him and they've not let others forget him. And I think the public has the voice and I want to say, Thank you for the voice. I want to say thank you for the donations because without those donations, we couldn't have got the billboards printed. We couldn't have got the posters printed. We couldn't have done half of what we had did from a campaign perspective without the mums and the dads and children. We, we know that there have been children who have donated their pocket money. When I found that out, I was just absolutely astounded. And, you know, we had children writing notes to us saying that they've donated their $1 pocket money for William. I mean, I I wrote this in a letter a little while, a couple of years ago, that thank you sometimes is just not enough. And it's thank you are not the right words. And I just am absolutely in awe of how the public have come together and bandied bandied for William. It just astounds us. We just are in, we're humbled by what people have done for him. So in the next episode, Leah, we're set to learn why Jane and Peter had to fight for an unprecedented reward with the state government for information into William's disappearance. A neighbour suddenly becomes very significant to the investigation and then out of nowhere, this entire case is thrown into turmoil. It is. When Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin, who we have heard a lot about already, is suddenly taken off the investigation and then sensationally criminally charged with offences relating to his investigation into this case. And that terrifies Jane and Peter as to what is the future of the investigation into their little boy's abduction and possible murder. How, How does it make you feel now? knowing that the man that you had trusted for 
all this time is now no longer going to be involved in your son's case, not even going to be a police officer anymore. How do you feel? Extraordinarily worried and concerned. I'm angry. And I'm really angry because police are playing with William. Yep. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what impact it has to us. It matters to William. Yep. William's investigation right now is not going. They're getting ready for coroner's court, the court. They're not investigating William. They're not investigating. They're getting information ready just to present to the coroner because it's going to go to cold case. And nobody, nobody within that department, within that police organisation is fighting for William. The only people who are fighting for William is us and Gary. Yep. That's it. And I am incredibly angry and I want them to know and I want the public to know we are never, ever giving up on finding out what happened to William and the people who can do that are police and they're doing nothing. Nothing about it. Nothing. It's disgusting. Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Thanks to Dennis Martin for contributing to this episode. Some of the music in this podcast series is provided by Storyblocks. A small section of audio in this episode first featured in an episode of Channel 9's A Current Affairs program. If you want more information about this case or this podcast series, please visit 10 Daily and go to the dedicated Where's William Tyrrell section, where you can see articles accompanying each episode that contain visual elements of things that were discussed. You can contact the show at where'swilliam at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.wereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>